Hi there, people. Welcome to the Wednesday's Child podcast. This is where we talk about all things eating disorder recovery. And every now and then we have the pleasure of inviting onto our podcast episodes a fabulous guest who tells us about their perspective on eating disorders, be that because they are a professional that helps other people get well or because they have traveled that awful journey themselves. So today you have three of us on this episode. You have my co-host, my uh, partner in crime, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Managing to miss the storm so far here in um, Middlesbrough. So the rest of you, be safe, keep well. Absolutely. Good good time to just kind of hunker down, you know, be in your Definitely. dressing gown, not, not doing any more exercise than you need to do, just treating yourself really kindly. Yeah. I'm, I'm, there's a mug of cho- hot chocolate downstairs with my name on when I'm done with this. That's that's the beauty. Can I just tell you all of temporarily living with your parents? They can't wait to make you another hot drink, another <laughs> piece of toast, and just you can't move for the kind of. Can I just do this for you? Um, but you know, it, it's kind of I'm drawing a line at. Um, my mum saying can I do your smalls for you no nope. <laughs> no nope. I'm over 40 <laughs> that. I can do those myself thank you very much <laughs> but you know truly I think she enjoys it anyway okay moving on uh, and after talking about my smalls joining our podcast today is Pippa who is going to tell us all about her recovery it's Pippa Matthews and Sarah and I have met Pippa some time ago and we just couldn't wait to bring her on this podcast and have her as a guest to tell her story because I don't know about you Sarah but I think you'll agree we were just kind of we were in awe weren't we of of her recovery journey and how she articulated it to us. Oh without doubt you seem to bring such spirit and kind of joy to such an unjoyful subject Pippa it's just so lovely to listen to you so thank you for joining us today it's just fantastic without further ado thank you so much for having me oh you're welcome (laughs) so tell us a little bit about yourself Pippa and you are in consulting and you live in London and um you've got a wonderful sister I remember that much (laughs) tell us tell us a little bit about your eating disorder journey and your background and Sarah and I will interject as we go along and try and express some of those questions and queries that we know that our listeners will be desperate to hear from you as we uh, go through yeah thanks thanks Zoe and Sarah and thanks thanks again for having me um so yeah um I actually um I have two sisters so um I um grew up in you know a a wonderful family and actually before we start I just have to say my family have been amazing throughout my whole journey and I I genuinely wouldn't be where I am without them so I do feel very privileged and very grateful to have had the support of them behind me throughout the whole journey which is something I know not everyone has um so in terms of my journey um I was I guess my eating disorder started um, just uh, as I moved to secondary school. I feel like I have quite one of those stereotypical journeys, which sometimes annoys me, but also I know it does speak to kind of a number of different people in a number of different ways. Um, I I actually had quite bad anxiety when I was a child. And although I, at the time it wasn't diagnosed, um, I went to a paediatrician who actually prescribed me sleeping tablets, which my mum resolutely refused to let me take. Mm-hmm. Um, I, was, I was quite an anxious child and developed quite a fear of actually being sick, which in, interplayed a little bit with my eating. And I was quite nervous to eat, worrying that I was going to be sick. At the same time, I was also a competitive swimmer. 
So I spent most of my evenings and weekends swimming, training, competing. Um, and there was a little bit of focus there on nutrition and what we should be eating. Um, and I just think that all coincided at the same time as me being quite anxious and also conversations around what we should and shouldn't eat and all those kind of things with school friends. And I do think there was probably some biological component as well. I probably did go into that kind of state of energy debt where I wasn't eating enough and something clicked in my brain. And at some point, I just suddenly decided that restricting what I was eating and restricting my calories was the right thing to do. And it very much felt like the right thing to do. Um, so that, and so that interests me, you know, kind of that point of energy deficit. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily correlate that that part of a journey of where the eating disorder manifests. Actually, it is the point of energy deficit wherein the eating disorder starts to come about. I mean, nothing proves that more than the Minnesota starvation experiment, does it? And, you know, that was the point at which the men's you know the the kind of neural rewiring kind of the, and all that unpicking of their brains started to happen in the men who had been so nutritionally starved do you, oh, yeah. do you, do you look back and you really you can identify that point can you so I can't pinpoint it down to a day um but I definitely now knowing what I know now about how kind of all of that energy deficit stuff kind of works I can look back and be like oh yes there was definitely some energy deficit component going on. And I do remember I had a, had a period where I was conscious of what I was eating, but I wasn't restricting. And then there was a point where that suddenly became very restrictive. Um, and I, I, I mean, it wouldn't be a day, but I do know, I do remember that, that happening. Um, and I also vividly remember my mum took me to the doctor, um, somehow convinced me that I should go to the doctor because well she we all knew what was going on but she had to come up with some convoluted reason why I needed to go and anyway the doctor said to me um you know why aren't you eating like why aren't you eating enough and I remember saying to the doctor I don't know I just don't I just don't feel like eating I just don't want to eat um and I remember I remember that quite vividly um so I think that I must there must have been that but at the time and for several years beyond that I had no concept of this kind of this more biological component of eating disorders I didn't I didn't know it um and um I it was only kind of in towards the later stages of my recovery that I've come to kind of that level of understanding that there is something really important about that nutritional rehabilitation that is essential if you want to recover but I do think alongside that um, that is, you know, there's all the neural rewiring and there's a lot of stuff to unpick as well beyond it. And I don't believe that my eating disorder was merely me being in energy deficit. I think there was a lot of other things going on as well, too. Do you believe you can do that at the same time, Pippa? Um, Debbie and I did a podcast just recently where we actually spoke about that. And I'm starting to think about my own journey. And and if I'd have known to do the nutritional bit first and then do the behaviors rather than trying to do them both together, for me, I think it would have been a, a quicker process. Mm. But um, you have to do the behaviors without a shadow of a doubt. I just wondered your opinion about whether the two can be done together. So I, I think they definitely can, but maybe not as it, I don't think it's as sim simple as maybe we'd like it to be in that you can do both at the same time because I know that I mean I, I know that not everyone has this experience but for me um, even the point at which I was taken to the doctor and I received my diagnosis of anorexia 
from that point in 2010 to, to this present day, I would have told you, or maybe not to this present day, I'm not quite, we just had a conversation about, am I recovered? Am I recovering? <laughs> anyway, but beyond that, you know, I would have said to you, I have anorexia and I want to recover. And I would always have said that. However, there would definitely be stages where if you looked at what I was doing, my actions just would not have correlated with that. Um, and I did go through quite a severe period in my eating disorder when I was at university where um, I was I was hospitalized um, in a general hospital for a period of time and then transferred over to the Priory um, for over a year. Um, and during that time, I was obviously nutritionally rehabilitating. And before that, I'd been really, really wanting to get well, but I just couldn't do it. And there was something quite paralyzing around I... I was clearly just so unwell and so physically unwell that, and, and when I say physically, I mean, I was, you know, it was quite severe, my, um, the level of kind of how underweight I was, but it wasn't just that. I think that impacted my brain as well. And I, I just couldn't, couldn't do it. And I therefore needed that intervention. And then it was only once I got to a point actually much further down the line than you might expect actually I was able to start taking that ownership for myself and actually start with the kind of the more neural rewiring part of stuff so I think towards the end of the journey at 100% it is possible but I do think there are times where you really do need that kind of intervention to just get that person out of that really severe acute stage in but order that they can really that. I think that's a really powerful admission and I really I could really feel it when you said I couldn't do it I could not do it because I think the thing that we find so hard in the work that we try to do with parents and carers is that really helping them understand that that person you love really cannot. So when you are saying to them, it is as simple as sit there and eat that there is everything inside you that might have that fight and when you are having those moments of clarity and conversation with that parent or that loved one and saying but I genuinely desperately want to be well and I'm really going to do it this time it isn't that you are trying to deceive and humiliate anybody or just deny the extent of the problem you really are genuinely quite committed to being well or very committed but there is you talk about paralysis and I, I, I think that's right. I think it is a paralysis, this huge barrier that just makes that person too bloody poorly, just yeah. too poorly to get even out of the starting blocks. And I, I'm sure, Sarah, I, I, you know, I mean, it's interesting actually to me that, you know, Pippa talks about being almost kind of quite a typical, you know, white girl, school girl, gets eating disorder, you know, that kind of perfect family, perfectionist, that yada, yada, yada. You, on the other hand, were a career woman at the time doing a really, really senior job. You'd got a husband who loved you. You'd got a daughter who needed you and adored you. You've got great family. You've got so much. Now, other people would say in exactly the same way, why did the paralysis catch you? Why could you not say, I, I know I'm going to lose this job. I know they're going to boot me out of this very, very senior position if I don't get a grip on this. 
I think for me, I've spoke about the fog a lot, haven't I? And for me, the fog was so thick. I didn't see that. I didn't, I, I felt I was, in, I was invincible. It, it was, it was almost as if my eating disorder had, had, had captured me in a way that was making me feel superhuman. If I kept doing this thing that nobody else can, nobody else can survive, like I can survive on 25 ki- um kilometer run a day and then you know this tiny amount of calories but I can and it was that that fog that didn't allow me to see the severity of the situation that even when I lost my job I still in my head I was like just it was just for a time period not a problem they'll have it back it won't be an issue so it wasn't until I started to get angry and I think that anger came from that fog starting to lift and me going oh crikey um, right, hang on. Right, hang on a minute. I am, I am at home, and I don't have my my money is running out, and I have got a mortgage still to pay, and my daughter's ten, and and it was once that fog started to go up a little bit, and I started to see the reality of the situation. That that's when panic starts kind of started to set in, and that's when I got angry. I got angry that whatever this was had let me get into this total mess. But at the time, I, I was invincible. Yeah, I actually, as you say that, Sarah, I can, I, I definitely felt remember the, like the same. I think, although obviously I was in a different stage, but I, when I look back on even, even though I mean I've deleted most of them now, but when I look back on the pictures of myself when I was in that really bad state, I mean it's obvious quite how unwell I was, and I knew, like I said, I, I knew I was unwell, but the severity of how unwell I was, I had no idea. I thought, oh yeah, I'm not very well, but you know it'll be fine, and like, and you know people kind of try and maybe there's fear mongering that goes around, and people are like, you know, this is going to impact your fertility, blah 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 blah. I knew that. But I just didn't really, I think it was sort of, it's the eating disorder trying to basically just block you. I think I had no emotion. I just was like, it was just this kind of this block that I knew I was a bit ill, but I just couldn't see quite how severe it was and quite what it was doing to my life, quite what it was doing to the people around me. It was just, you know, it just... You, you're just kind of in your eating disorder at that well, that stage. I definitely was very much just in my eating disorder. And this was just that was all the world that I if I could have as well. And I, th- I think when you're young, a long term impact is something doesn't really seem to acknowledge with you mm. when you're younger. You know, when I was teaching, I used to do and we used to do like behavior management and all that stuff. They used to say, if you, if you find a group of kids smoking at the back of the school, don't say to them, right, stop smoking, because when you're older, you'll die say to them something on the lines of stop smoking because if you keep doing that you won't be able to afford to go to the cinema on Saturday mm. and like making it so that it's really recognizable as to the impact now if you do this if you keep doing this serious action the impact on you now as opposed to in the future um because when when, when you're 13 if someone's saying to you well you won't be fertile you, what what does that actually mean to a 13 year old vice versa for me I had my child. So when people started saying to me, well, your menopause will start soon. I was like, oh, well, I've got, I've got kids. And, and it's not until you, you, that fog clears that you go, hang on a minute. This, what, this is really serious. Being a woman and not being fertile. This is like, this is seriously serious. Um, but yeah, it, it's really interesting how actually it, it's, it's often very, very similar regardless whether you're young or older. It's the same battle and that same fog. And you talked briefly there about ending up being impatient. And actually, um, I'd, I'd forgotten that part of your story was quite the extent of, you know, the, the duration that you ended up being in hospital. Was that for one, you know, one uninterrupted period? Or did you have periods where you got very close to being discharged and then found it more difficult? 
Um, no, so I did have um, a briefer period of inpatient when I was um, a teenager. So um, I was I was doing my, I was taken out of school and then I was doing, doing my GCSEs, did my GCSEs at home, went back to school, um, did a little bit of A-levels and then got unwell again and ended up in hospital for my A-levels. But then I then had a year where I was, actually I did a bit of day patient and then went to university, but I just it was that whole thing I thought I was better or I thought I was in a better enough place I was pulling the wool over everyone's eyes around me um other than my parents who knew what was going on but didn't really have the power to do anything and anyway the second year of my of university was when I got 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 the most unwell that I I'd been um so I was I sort of I, I was take I can't to be honest with you it's quite difficult for me to remember because I was so unwell that I can't can't quite chronologically make it make sense in my head but I was admitted to the Priory um, and they took me for for one night and they did all the kind of the things they do when they admit you to hospital and then they said you're too unwell we can't have you here you need to go to a general hospital and I from that moment on I can't I can't remember anything for about a couple of weeks and then I was then nutritionally rehabilitated there for a little while until I was medically stable um, and then I was taken back to the Priory and that was when um, I spent it was over a year that I was in the Priory for um, and actually I mean at the bit very beginning of that I was as it kind of comes back to what we were just talking about in that I said to people when I kind of was in the general hospital and I was like how did this happen how how on earth did I get this unwell I'll never ever let this happen again I just I just have to get better but then if you then said that to me when I was back in the Priory, I you know, I was very resistant at first and I just really, I just couldn't, it was again, I, I couldn't do it. I just wanted to, but there was something in me whenever the food came at me, I would be like, no. Um, and so it took a while, I think, you know, there were, there was quite a long time where I was just basically stuck in my room, wasn't allowed to do anything. Um, until like, and I just, it, it was quite probably three months of that time I was, really quite still quite medically unwell but also just like not able to engage very well and so once I'd got over that there was just a re it just took a long time and I obviously there were ups and downs in that time but I would say like the whole time it wasn't that I kind of got a bit better and then I went back downhill again it was just it just took time because of how unwell I had got and also because of how unwell I'd got they were actually brilliant there and like I owe genuinely owe my life to that to the to the priory um but they also were like we're not going to discharge you at you know a low a, like at a point at which you could within a couple of months end up back here again we want to get you as close to that healthy zone as we can because that's going to be much more sustainable and they did have that knowledge which I know I'm very privileged that that was something that they were able to do for me because I know a lot of people come into treatment and then get as soon as they're like okay you're you're you know you're at x bmi now you can go um, that actually Pippa you there you hit onto something which I fear being a situation that we're going to see increasingly at the moment because we know that referral rates are up so so much given what's happened during the pandemic the number of beds that we have across the country for people in need of eating disorder inpatient stays is limited you know that hasn't massively got better alongside the rates going up over the last two years so to some extent there will be this issue around the unit saying okay you're kind of where we need you to be you know off you go 
go and try and manage this at home. And and we all know that unless you go some way beyond that that kind of nutrition point and and restoration, then relapse and the revolving door is is all too likely to happen again. And I think you know it's where people are really really fortunate if they're in a region where things like you had the day patient option, didn't you, Sarah? And, uh, and you carried on with that. For day a while. services was my absolute lifeline. So you know, I did six six months inpatient. You know, it was what it was. But it was the eighteen months after that. That's when I did my real recovery and the occupational mm. therapeutic support it was having to go well having get getting picked up by the taxi taken and then having to having to work at recovery every single day at day service taught me how to work on recovery yeah. and if if I'd have been a community patient where they just came to you once a week I wouldn't have had and I hate to say but the excuse to work on recovery because at that point the eating disorder didn't want me to do it but because I was literally picked up and taken to a place I had to focus on recovery and I was there because there was no other choice there was literally no other choice and I just think that's got to be that for me was better than being in in, in inpatients Um, that's got to be something that we must be able to find resources to be able to to support more day service care because it must be cheaper because it is you're not there 24 hours a day and I appreciate it's still going to be costly but day services all the way for me and it's so based in that kind of you know what you traditionally call occupational therapy type model isn't it you know let's teach that person how to you know make a meal for themselves Everything. and serve it with you know five people around the table and to sit comfortably in a living room watching some television for two hours and not feeling the need to go and do some exercise it is then going with that person to a cafe and spontaneously ordering something without needing to scrutinize the menu or you know um it, it's all of those things and I think that's where good day daycare provision should just be you know well it should be kind of mirrored around the UK and and that absolutely as you say is where the money should be going not just in beds and beds alone yeah I agree I think I so I did have a a stint in day patient as well um but it was the first after my first hospital admission um and I think that was partly I was I was still quite young at the time I don't think I'd really taken I don't still don't think I was taking my recovery as seriously as I should have done um and I I basically was there for, I can't even remember how long, it was maybe a month, but I didn't, I think that the problem with, not the problem, it's brilliant and I think it's great, um, but with day patient, you have to be quite committed, I think, in that I would do what I had to do during the day, but then, you know, there was there's, a, there's more scope for things to happen, for not to not happen or happen that shouldn't yeah. be happening at home. Um, and I think it didn't work for me because I wasn't in the right mindset. But I, I, I look I remember, I can remember somebody I know really well that she's doing really well now, but I can remember her telling me that actually her day service option was her opportunity to go up and go along and show up and make it look like she was really committed to recovery. But every day she left the house with a rucksack because what she was really going to do was as soon as she was away from day service, when they finished at the end of the day, was change discreetly somewhere and run, taking mm-hmm. an extra 10 miles on her route home to expend everything that she'd just worked on during the day because she could get away with it because you know other people assumed she'd been committed to her recovery all that day so uh, there are as you say it's there's a balance isn't there but I think in the right mindset and with the right additional support around you that's where it's kind of really important about the crew isn't it that that you have around you if that bit's in place 
then day service is your perfect answer. And being able to kind of be in the bosom of a family or a partnership is, is where that's really helpful. And I, I think that's probably a really good time to bring in, because I know it's so important to you and it really does feature in your story, is the relationship with your family, and in particular your sister and sisters. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, my family, as I said at the beginning, have been have been amazing throughout the journey. And I look back and I could <laughs> get quite emotional about what I put them through um, and how good they have been to me throughout the journey. And I think um, when I was first diagnosed and I was I was a teenager and kind of beginning, we were beginning to understand what my eating disorder was. And I was, as I said, I was taken out of school and I was really awful I was horrendous to my family I was I was like um quite abusive really physically and verbally to my sisters my parents I was I was just awful um and um I still to this day can't quite express my you know apologies to them for what I did do and I mean it was the eating disorder and they did come to understand that and I do remember vividly being sat in a room with my um psychologist at the time who said to my sisters and my parents you've got to imagine that it's like an alien has taken over Pippa this isn't Pippa um and Pippa is Pippa's there but what you're seeing of Pippa is not Pippa and I think that probably helped them to realize that it wasn't me but I would I would do this this stuff and I'd get really angry with them and then a few minutes later I'd realize what I'd done and I would be absolutely distraught because I didn't want to be doing it it wasn't like I hated my family I was you know I've got an amazing family and they were brilliant um so that was quite a, a hard time for all of us um but then I think and then obviously there was hospital admissions etc cetera, etc cetera, and throughout university and my my family were amazing actually when I was in inpatient as well I was you know they they came and visited me my dad when I was in the general hospital was by by the context of this is I was also in a hospital that was miles and miles and miles away like two and a half hour drive from my house because of, that was the only place where there was a bed at the time wow. um and my dad came every single day and was by my bedside by eight o'clock in the morning every single day um so I feel very strongly like grateful to them for that but it also has been and I mean there's been other things sorry I could go on about this for ages but there's been other things that have been really hard for my family like I was supposed to be a bridesmaid to my older sister's wedding and I wasn't allowed to go because I was too unwell in the hospital and that was something that was hard for all of us um and I missed my little sister's baptism and missed her 18th birthday um it was there's been a lot that I've missed out on and for, for the it feels worse I I feel for them as opposed to for my own self if that makes sense um but I think just on that sorry just kind of interjecting it just made me think you must have experienced COVID through very different a very different prism in some ways almost reflecting at different points during the lockdown when you were hearing those stories of people that couldn't go to those special occasions or couldn't do certain things that were happening in other parts of the country because people couldn't access loved ones you must have reflected at those times on what you had you know I, I don't want to say caused but you know your your poorliness had created that scenario for your family oh yeah definitely um COVID I mean we'll come on to it in a minute COVID was, was a really good time for me actually in terms of my recovery but it did I think one of the things that so there was a period of time 
when I was in hospital and all of those things, I was not allowed to go out. I wasn't allowed to see anyone because they were worried about my immune system and things. I wasn't, I literally was confined to a room and wasn't allowed to, I wasn't, I couldn't get off my bed. I wasn't allowed apart from to go to the loo. Um, there was a period of time where I couldn't, I couldn't move anyway. Um, but also I, I, so I was genuinely like in my own room lockdown and it was, I would say much, much worse than real lockdown. I wasn't allowed outside. It was a really stupidly designed hospital actually, because the eating disorder unit was, um, it was, there was several other units, but the eating disorder unit was up some stairs, but it was in a period building. So there was no lift, which meant if you were kind of, if, if they were worried about me climbing stairs and things. So I wasn't allowed and there was, I, in, I, there was no lift. So I couldn't go down the stairs. So I wasn't, I couldn't go outside. I just physically was like not able to go outside for a period of about three months, which I don't think is, you know, good for anyone's mental health. But anyway, that was the situation that I was in. So I think then when obviously when lockdown came and everyone was like, oh, my word, all of our freedoms are taken away and we can't, you know, we can't go, can't go for a walk when we want to. And, you know, I, I can't see my friends and things. And I was like, you know, I wasn't like, oh, this is a breeze, because obviously it was still not nice for, for me. And it wasn't it's not nice for anyone. But I just think it did give me a very different perspective on what kind of, you know, that restriction was. And it was like. It, yeah I, I don't know it was it was quite an interesting experience but it did as as you say I think it was a very reflective time for me because I was like I kind of realized basically how my eating disorder had what what it had done and all of those things that I had missed out on but although I, I know and I, I I accept it was not my fault it's the eating disorder and and you can't I can't put any blame on a disease in the same way that you wouldn't put blame on someone having cancer but the things that I you know if you anyone would have given anything uh, during Covid to have been able to go to someone's wedding or see their friends and I just think how could I have you know almost imposed that on myself and on my family um in a way that was you know feels Ooh. now reversible and, and and I could have could have not done that if that makes sense yeah tell me about the relationship with your family today yeah, so um, oh gosh, it's it's got so much better. So um, I when I during COVID, uh, I sort of alluded to earlier, I um, I went home for um, the first lockdown, and actually that was a time where I it was post hospital. I was much much better, but I was in what you know a lot of people would refer to would be quasi recovery. I you know I th I think I've been in quasi recovery at multiple stages, and I wouldn't say you know, I think, you know, an eating disorder is an eating disorder, but I wasn't in a critical place. Um, but I did go home and very intentionally said to my family, um, I have been struggling since moving, it was just after I'd moved to London and had started work. And, you know, I want to make sure I'm focusing on my recovery, because I think there's a danger that if I don't, I will go backwards. So I had the support of my family there. And I was so my little sister was there with me and my parents. Um, and um, it was like, it was actually, Although it was, you know, it was hard. I was, I was really pushing forward with my recovery. I think my, it was really good for my family. I think to see me in a much better place, and particularly for the relationship with my little sister, who had seen, you know, she was really young when I was kind of as unwell as I was at the beginning, and really, it really would have been awful for her. So for her to see me in a much better place and to actually almost be able to help me with that, I think there was something really, really special about it because I think in the past she'd felt very, very powerless to help me, but very scared, I think. Yeah. 
I think actually en- enabling members of your family to feel like, you know, you talk about power, but feel like they can play a role in the recovery. And sometimes the, the really difficult thing is knowing how to help them help you and, and being able to articulate that. And I think it's one of the biggest challenges that families have when they're trying to help somebody recover is because actually we don't know ourselves. What do we want them to do? Do we want them to kind of banish us from the kitchen and not allow us to micromanage things? Or, you know, do we want them just to put up with us when we're having tantrums? Do we want us them to, I don't know, dispose of our Fitbits and our trainers? Mm. Or, you know, what are the parts we want them to play? But I, I think you're, you're right that, you know, it is that being an, able to allow them to feel that they are involved and playing some way of supportive behavior because she your younger sister in particular must have felt like a a bystander to it and just watching you every day not loving yourself enough and not loving yourself as much as she loved you and as much as she wanted you to be well and I think there's a responsibility there from the well I from the sufferer I suppose so from me I think that around me just being having open with them I think that was something I really really struggled with when I was younger so because because my parents at the time were so involved in my care and my family was so involved in it which it it meant that I was scared of saying anything because I was nervous that that would impact on you know what I was allowed to do or what how they would treat me or the food that they would give me and all these kind of things whereas I think when I was as an adult going back to that I and also just much more mature, I think, which which definitely helped. Um, I was able to kind of actually voice things in a way that was just much more kind of like adults. We just have a conversations about things that meant that it was just so much more transparent, but a way that then allowed them to help me and not in a way that they, I felt like they were attacking me if they were saying, oh, why are you doing that? It would be, I, I it would be much more kind of, I guess, collaborative in a way where, I would voice something and then my, you know, I think I, I've told you before, Debbie, of the story when I was in the supermarket with my sister and I remember seeing this ready meal that I really fancied. I think it was like a, a prawn pasta or something. Um, and I picked it up from the, from, from, we were, we were choosing dinner and I picked it up and looked at it. And then I saw the, the nutritional information on the front and was like, oh no, no, I can't have that. Or, or something along those lines of, or, oh no, that's scary. I think, I think it wasn't even, I can't have it. I think it was more like that's scary. And my sister was like, she put her hand over the front of the of the nutrition information and said, if I do that, it's not scary anymore, is it? <laughs> um, and then and then we went and bought it. And I think there's that almost that like implicit understanding that she she knows me so well and she has learned over time. And obviously there are things that we haven't communicated well, but she knows when it's okay to push me and when. It's just like, you know, I'm just going to leave it. Um, and that's something that I think was very valuable. And I think the harder thing has been, I've had an old, my, have, have had an older sister, I still have an older sister, um, who has equally been brilliant. And um, I, because she wasn't there, she wasn't living with us, she's married and has her own family and things. So um, we've had to relearn that, I think. And she was, um, uh, she's uh, two years older than me so when I was at home and going through that and then she got married as I said while I was in hospital and lots of things have happened kind of very separately so we've had to relearn how to have a how to be sisters basically since I've been well and we have learned that well and and um she's just had a baby and it's been so nice being so involved in in that but it's definitely taken you know uh, it has been like a relearning thing because 
in the past she took such a caring role um, or actually had to care for my little sister while my mum was looking after me so it's been quite a an interesting journey throughout my for my whole family and I know I mean I'm also must say this is only my perspective on it and my sister's might think something completely different to me so this is just kind of from from my view anyway Oh, well, congratulations on being an auntie. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best job ever. I love it. it absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Wow. It's just, it's so inspiring to hear you talk in, in such a way about your recovery and to be kind of really honest about how it's been for you and, and also kind of where you are at today and, and how you feel about recovery going forward. And, you know, we talked before um, about how you feel that this is, something that you'll keep working at and you know it's not just a kind of celebrate forget about it and say you never have to kind of think about it again but you do feel now you are well beyond that period of kind of stuckness procrastination you feel fully committed to continuing to stay recovered yeah definitely and I do think there's there's a definite consciousness to the recovery that I think I hope that one day you know this will just be you know this will be a memory that I have to be aware of because I know my vulnerability but equally that this is something that I can say I have you know I don't I don't struggle with any kind of food related thought or anything like that and I do truly believe that there is hope for that complete full recovery but equally I do feel now I, I 100% I'm in the best place that I have ever been in um, and I think the the thing that I have to be aware of now is becoming complacent I think you know there are I, I'm, I'm I don't fear and of course I'm not saying it could never ever happen but um, I don't fear being in that back in that really really critical acute stage of my disorder because I think I am beyond that but I do think there's a danger and I have seen it happen to me where I take the eye off my eye off the ball and I just become a bit stagnant and I just let things slip a bit and I think I don't want to be you know battling thoughts for the rest of my life and that's where the kind of the conscious keep like just keep keep chipping away at those tiny little things at the end so that you can get there and you can experience that completely full freedom um, that I truly believe is possible um, and it's just a very different stage in the journey to where you know what we have been talking about but it's just as important I think and I don't think you can an eating disorder is an eating disorder whether or not you're you know at a very critical acute stage of your disorder or whether or not you are you know much further down the line but there's still niggles there I, I, I think it's important to you know acknowledge if there's any level of compulsion there, any level of fear, it's really important to keep pushing at it because it's not, it is about kind of taking the action to really get that last bit gone. And then there is that kind of full freedom awaiting. So that's kind of what I believe to be true anyway. And I think it is, a, it's a bit like a muscle that needs to continuous training, doesn't it? It just, it needs you to keep working on that, that, that muscle of recovery to just ensure that it becomes habitual rather than the bit that you always have to kind of make some effort over. Yeah, definitely. Well, you should just, you should be so proud about how far you've come and how you're doing. And I, I think, you know, the fact that you're in the place that you are and that you can really acknowledge and you, you can look back over your past without 
I know you say you are sad and disappointed and, you know, you feel incredibly grateful to your family and, and sorry for what happened during that period. But equally, I, I don't see a woman who's so wrapped in remorse and regret that actually she's going to let it blindside her forevermore. You know, there's a there's a past, there's kind of where you are now, and then there's that glorious future that you're keeping your eye on and knowing why you want to stay being well. And I, I think that's the best place to be. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, you can, I can learn from what I've been through, but I can't, I can't go back and change the past. Um, but what I can do is make the most of kind of where I have come from and where I am now and the opportunities that I have now. Um, and so, yeah, just got to, got to make up for that lost time and, and get on with living my life now. <laughs> and just by being on this podcast today, I guarantee there will be some people that have listened right now and thought, that's what I want to do. I want to emulate that. I want to, if she can do that, I can do that. And, you know, you you will never know. And I often think that about when Sarah and I have the conversations on the podcast, you just don't know who's listening, who you've helped in, and does it even matter? But I absolutely guarantee you've put it out there in the universe. And today in somebody's headphones somewhere in the world, they will be listening to your story and thinking, yeah, you know what? I am going to get on with this. I am going to do this. I am going to get recovery. Oh, I hope so. And like, that is, you know, a hundred percent what I, what the message I want to get out there. Like I'm not some, and I know Debbie Sari would say the same. I'm not some unicorn or someone that's like extra special powers or whatever. Believe me, if you saw my life, you would know that's definitely not the case. And it is just, um, yeah, if it's that kind of, if I can do it, so can you, it's just, it is anyone, anyone can recover and it's, it's hard. It's really, really hard, but yeah, I just hope that people have had, you know, and it's a little bit of inspiration by listening to this and um, can know that they can do it too. Oh, thank you so much for joining us today, Pippa. Really, really appreciate it. It's been lovely. It's been really nice chat to uh, Pippa, hasn't it, Sarah? It's just, um, yeah, just, just great to hear her journey. I like getting guests on. We need more guests. And also, yeah. I just sit and listen. It's like Jack and Ori story time for me. This isn't work. This is just me sat listening. Sitting on the carpet with your legs crossed, are you? I might as well be. I just went into a total and utter, like, days there, just listening to that lovely voice and that wonderful story. So thank you. Thank you so much. Oh. Listeners, just be assured that we didn't let Sarah kind of suck her thumb and drop off the <laughs> corner of the carpet. So uh, she was sitting attentively throughout that podcast. I was, I promise. <laughs> if, if similarly if, if you feel you've been on a recovery journey and you want to do as Pippa has done and share that story with us or you've got another reason that you feel you'd really like to talk on an episode of the Wednesday's Child podcast then please get in touch and I am sure in the not too distant future we will be welcoming Pippa back again to ask her just to spend a little bit more time with us so we can sit listening like Jack and Ori all over again Thank you so much, Fippa. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We will be back with another Wednesday's Child episode really soon. Take care, keep well, and we will see you soon. Bye.